0: This is Guns
1: and Butter.
2: On capitalism, I tried there to find out what's the essence of it. What is its, uh, as a, scholars would say, the sine qua non? Without this, it couldn't exist. And the essence of it, for me, which I elaborate upon, is it must exploit labor. It must, it must continually expand. Its economy must continually expand at home, and in turn, that requires that its strength and power expand abroad. And it must be ruled oligarchically by a handful.
0: I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Doug Dowd. Doug Dowd has been teaching and writing socio-economic history for more than 50 years. He was chair of the economics department at Cornell University in the 1960s and was also a national figure in the movement to end the Vietnam War. A professor of economic history at Johns Hopkins University in Italy and also at the University of California, Doug Dowd has written over 10 books critical of capitalism, including Capitalism and Its Economics, A Critical History, The Twisted Dream, Capitalist Development in the United States Since 1776, and Understanding Capitalism, critical analysis from Karl Marx to Amartya Sen. His new book, The Broken Promises of America at Home and Abroad, Past and Present, an encyclopedia for our times, is published by Common Courage Press in two volumes. Doug Dowd, welcome.
2: Good to have you here. Good to see
0: you again, Doug. You have a new book out that has just been published by Common Courage Press in two volumes, entitled The Broken Promises of America at Home and Abroad, Past and Present, An Encyclopedia for Our Times. What motivated you to write these two volumes?
2: Well, you know really about two of the things that are part of the background. One of them is that I've been teaching free classes for the past 30 years or so in the San Francisco Bay Area. And the students, if I can call them that, who've been in those classes, are really much better informed than the average person and much more interested in what's going on politically than the average person in the United States, but they are not informed well enough, in my judgment, I think also in theirs, in order to really have the kind of strong courage of their convictions that's really essential if you're going to go out and try to part of a movement. I mean, in this day and age of so much really dishonesty, which we call spin, in the media, from whether it's from politicians, or business people, or Hollywood, or whatever the hell it is, is so much misinformation, and disinformation, and confused information, and so much power behind what's wrong, that it's very difficult for the average person to have the confidence, self-confidence, that will really, if we're gonna have a serious political movement in this country, and we really need one now more than ever in our history, It's going to have to be done by a very small minority, of the population becoming larger and larger and larger by political activity. And it's very difficult for people to go out, for example, and say, hey, these taxes that uh, Bush has been pushing on us are really unfair and also harmful. If somebody answers back and gives them any kind of an answer at all, if they don't really have a pretty good handle on it, then they're going to really get discouraged, the people who are trying to do this. Now, the other part of this is that I have written, as you know, this is my 15th book, but it's the only one that's an encyclopedia. And I know also from teaching not just my classes, but teaching in universities for the past half century, that, and also from just knowing people in my, my social world, that most people read very, very, very few books. Okay, Very, very few books. One is because they're expensive, another is because the books take too much time. And the other is, even if people have money and time, there are hundreds of books they really ought to read. I, for example, in this book, there's a bibliography of about 500 books, okay? All of them are books that are referred to in the text. But I feel myself that there are another 500 books I need to read, okay? And I have the, I not only have the time, that's what my work is, is reading and thinking and talking about it and so on and so on. And I don't feel I know enough either, but I know enough to make a good argument with almost anybody. And I think that all these people I'm talking about who I hope will read the book and the students that you've seen in the classes you've been in yourself, I think that if they just sort of take the time, and it's an encyclopedia, so if somebody says something about taxes, they can go to tea and read taxes. If they, somebody talks about embedded reporters in, in Iraq, they can go to that and read it very quickly. As I've said to people, it's the kind of thing you can put in your toilet and just read it a little bit at a time, you know, as though it were a dictionary or encyclopedia. Now some of the entries in it are, and they're about 165 entries, but some of them are maybe a couple of paragraphs long and some of them are 20 or 30 pages long. I mean, I have a one on racism that's 15 pages long, the one on Bush himself, his administration, his policies, it's well is about 35 pages long. And the book itself is about 800 pages, but it's in two volumes, so it's 400, 400 pages. So the motivation for the book was that, in, in some sense or another, a combination of what I see as real facts namely that we're in the worst political, social, economic, and military crisis we've ever been in, an environmental crisis, and it's going to get very, very much worse, no matter whether Kerry or Bush is elected. It's very important, in my, my judgment, that Bush be kicked out because they're the most dangerous people in the whole world. And the other thing is that people just simply have to recognize that voting, no matter how we vote, is not enough. We really have to organize ourselves into a very serious widespread movement which represents all the various issues that all of us are interested in health care education the war and so on all of us have to be working on those separate issues that fire us up most but recognize we've got to be working together with all the other people or else we're never going to be able to hold on you understand it's gotten to be very 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 serious and uh, and so on that's my short answer (laughs) you know me i give long answers
0: so the book is structured as an encyclopedia, meaning that people don't need to read it from cover to cover. They can pick up at any place.
2: Oh, certainly, that, that's the whole idea is not to read it from cover to cover, but to go to the sort of thing that, that's biting on them, that they want to know about, they can look it up. But also, any entry that you look at, let's say uh, inequality, for example. If you look at inequality, then within a page or so, you'll see in bold, bold letters, the word poverty will come up. That means there's an entry on poverty. If you look up poverty and other things, and you look up, you'll see racism in bold, and so on and so on and so on. So that in any given entry, there may be five or six or seven or even more cross-references. The reason for this is that everything really is connected with everything else. You know, As I say in the book, there's an old song out in the 20s or the 30s called The Hip Bones Connected to the Thigh Bone, and so on and so on. But everything is interacting all the time, and if you just prick your leg with a pin, it's gonna have several different consequences. Well, the same thing is true if you lower taxes, for example, of a certain kind. That's gonna have consequences that go throughout the economy and the society. Some of the consequences will be tiny, and some of them will be larger, but everything is connected. So the way the book was written was to make those connections so that people can go from one thing to another. But at the same time, they can just start at one thing and stick with it if that's what they wanna do. Also, in each of these things, whenever I cite something, if it's a periodical, a New York Times or something, I give the full citation in the article. If it's from a book, I give the author's name, and it's in full caps, so people can know they can look up that book, and I hope some of them will go and read those books, read part of those books, and so on. So what it is, is a, is a kind of a school. And I, as you know, I've been teaching since 1949, and I'm an old geezer, I think I've got some sense of the possibilities with most people, young people and older people. But I also have, a, I think, a pretty good idea now of, of the obstacles to them realizing those possibilities, their understanding possibilities and their political possibilities. So this is just a, one thing that I can do. Many, many other things have to be done both by me and everyone else is to, to try to make it feasible to think of a political movement. I don't care what it's called. I don't care whether it's called a third party. I don't care what it's called. There has to be a movement that does not depend upon the people who are presently running our government or our society. and It has to come from the bottom and the middle up. The people at the top don't want any change except to make things worse, because they're doing just fine.
0: Doug, in the different subjects, you give the historical context for a lot of the subjects, don't you?
2: Well... The historical thing is very, very important. As a matter of fact, out of the over 100 entries, I would say that at least three-quarters of them begin with a historical statement. Just as, again, to make the comparison between us and our society, if somebody's screwed up or happy, and you want to understand why he or she's that way, you've got to understand how they began. You go, I mean, I'm not a strict Freudian, but if you don't understand how a person got to be the way he or she is, unless you understand... What their childhood was like. And the childhood, the kind of childhood that they had, very much affects what's happened between then and the present. Well, the same thing is true with us. And I mean, I begin when I talk about racism, for example, this thing, I start off with Columbus, you understand? And so on and so on. Not that I believe that there's racism is confined in the United States, but it's pervasive in the United States to the degree that it is not in any other country. One of the things that made us the kind of nation we have become in terms of human contributions, was that we got so many people from so many different cultures with so many different possibilities involved. And then what did we do? We said we established the idea of the melting pot. We should forget about all those great differences and all should become whatever this might mean, quote, an American. Well, when you follow the processes that went from Columbus landing, and I quote Howard Zinn on this, and who in turn is quoting Columbus's diary, when he landed, and he wrote in his diary, we landed, and he's gentle people came to greet us carrying gifts. They don't have any weapons, except things that could be made out of vegetables or like from cane sugar or something like that. They were so friendly and so generous. And I said to myself, when I said to my soldiers, why with 50 soldiers we can just make anything out of them that we want to do? We will have servants for our lives, you know, and so on. This is the way it begins. Well, of course, Columbus wasn't American, he was Spanish. He was Italian, in fact, and That mentality was an easy basis for the slavery that followed. And once you had the the mistreatment of, I always put quotes about Indians, because they never called themselves Indians until we made them do that. We we moved from, from mistreating, abusing, and destroying the Indian culture and the Indian people in very large amounts, to happily depending upon slavery. And the U.S. economy was really critically dependent upon slavery until after the Civil War, or just about the time of the Civil War. But the kind of capital that went into the industrialization process came from the profits from slavery and slave production and plantation production. So you have to understand that history. And we became, this is just one instance, of course, but people in the United States became accustomed. Think of other people to some degree or another, as things rather than as human beings. In the process, we, we dehumanized ourselves doing that. Until now you get to the point where you have hundreds of different kinds of people with who knows how many kinds of ethnicities and religions and nationalities and so on mixed up, all of them striving very much to be accepted as, quote, Americans. Okay, I'll never forget, I don't forget at all, that when I went to high school in San Francisco, and I grew up in the Italian Quarter, North Beach, I went to high school... And about half of the students at my high school, which is called Galileo High School, were Italian. Everyone was Italian except myself. But none of them could speak Italian. Their parents forbade it. Their parents wouldn't teach them Italian because they didn't want them to get in trouble. Well, you lose your language and you lose your culture. And what you get then in the United States is a culture of lacking entirely in any kind of traditions except making money and making war and being racist. Now that's just one example of a historical analysis, but everything I talk about, whether it's advertising or consumerism or, or arrogance, or everything, everything has a historical thing, but it's important for people to understand that you can't understand anything except with, at least, it's necessary but not a sufficient condition, understand how it got to be that way.
0: Doug, you're an economist. Now I'm assuming that there's a lot of economics in the book, is there a short history of capitalism for instance?
2: yeah, there's a long entry on capitalism and there's a longer even longer entry on economics which begins the economics begins with what's wrong with economics namely that it's dominated by abstract theorizing it has not only has nothing to do with reality it's entirely out of whack with reality and yet economic policy is based upon that economics and is essentially economic theory is the basis for the ideology of capitalism, and so on. But then I go on to argue about what is necessary to understand the economy. On capitalism, I tried there to find out what's the essence of it. What is its, uh, as uh, scholars would say, the sine qua non? Without this, it couldn't exist. And the essence of it for me, which I elaborate upon, is it must exploit labor, it must, it must continually expand, its economy must continually expand at home, and in turn that requires that its strength and power expand abroad, and it must be ruled oligarchically by a handful. Okay? And then I try to explain how that works and so on and so on. I try to help people understand how capitalism works. And one of the things that's interesting is you could take a PhD in economics at a decent university and never hear the word capitalism. They talk about the free enterprise system and all that jazz, you know. It's not really jazz. I like jazz and I don't like that other stuff. But, but uh, And I might say, and this takes me to another thing, which should be one of the first things that one learns about in economics. I'd go to a word, needs. One of the entries under N is needs. Uh, one of the things that economics just never talks about are human needs. You understand? The average person in the street educated or uneducated. If you say to them, well, what's important for us to understand? One of the things the words would pop out was so long as our needs are met. But there's nothing in there. Economics talks about wants, but not needs. And as my now too many years gone dead, Paul Baran used to say, and I quote this particular thing he said several times in the book because it's relevant. Baran said, living under conditions of modern capitalism we are taught to want what we don't need and not to want what we do and that's almost if you had to put something on the gravestone of capitalism, that would be it. It teaches people to want what they don't need and not to want what they do and that's what consumerism is all about so you've got people borrowing well everybody in the family working borrowing buying crap doesn't last doesn't really serve any function and you know you replace your TV, you replace your car, you replace this, that, the other thing. And at the same time, believing that a, a universal healthcare care system would be some kind of a disaster for themselves. Because how are they supposed to know? It's not the fault of the people if they don't know. I mean, the system, the information or the disinformation that we get and a kind of a constant high din is always telling us something else. I mean, you have to go searching for... I have to go. I'm the guy who's talking. I have to go searching for a place to find a good explanation and justification for universal health care system.
0: I'm speaking with economist and author Doug Dowd. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Doug, you discuss in your book globalized monopoly capitalism, and you also have an entry on financialization. You give a short history of the financialization of economies starting maybe from ancient times through the Middle Ages and up until the present. And in your entry on financialization, you talk about a concept of panic first. What's that?
2: (laughs) You know, it just happens that in the New York Times today, on the front page of the business section, Louis Uchitella, I think he pronounces his name, or Uchitella, who's their principal economics writer, financial writer, talks about just this question summarizing the attitudes of people in the financial community, some economists, some business people, and so on. And what you have to know in the first place is the very rickety position of the United States, both in the world economy and at home. I mean, when you think about financialization, whatever else you're talking about, you're always talking about debt. Who owes and who's owed? hmm? And that's not the only thing you're thinking about. You're also talking very important about Speculation, okay, speculation is, financialization dominates the economy, speculation dominates financialization. And it wasn't always that. If you go back to the beginnings, the pre-beginnings, so to speak, the womb of capitalism was in late medieval Europe where you had the city-states, which were trading, trading city-states, and it was trade and finance that dominated then. And then with the Industrial Revolution, it became to be for a very long time, industry, manufacturing, industry, production that dominated. And now, just in the past 20 years, financialization has come to dominate again. So that the data, which I quote in the book, and the book is filled with data, it's filled with all kinds of substantiation, okay? And the data that you get, I might say the best single book on this area is written by a conservative who believes that capitalism is slicing its own throat, namely Kevin Phillips, who's written, oh, at least a half a dozen books in the last 10 years, and the one in which this filled with data, it's called wealth and democracy. He's just scared out of his wits that capitalism is doing itself in by excessive greed and excessive speculation, excessive concentration of economic and political power and corruption and so on. He's just really, he's really scared. Okay, so what's happened now is that companies that used to depend upon their production and their efficiency in production are now being run by CEOs who have nothing to do with and know damn little, if anything, about production. I mean, I never was an admirer of the the guys who ran General Motors or General Electric or General this, that. These people, usually a Henry Ford, that kind of person, rose up in the production thing and had at least some sense of what's going on. The CEOs of today, I don't care which company you're talking about, whether it's pharmaceuticals or whatever, are hired for their or given their job because they're successfully aggressive in terms of what, in terms of making money in the financial relationships of their company, okay, whether that's through the mergers and acquisitions, money that is made by the people who pull these things off, or through the kinds of investments that they make in money, rather, than, and so on. And if you look at somebody like Phillips, or for that matter, business—it doesn't matter what you look at—and you look at the figures for household debt, the national debt, foreign debt, the debt of non-financial corporations. If you look at those things, it's just, if you have any hair left, it makes your hair fall out. It's just really scary. I mean, the average household, by the time the average household gets to the first of every month, and it gets a paycheck. I'm Talking about the average household. Let's say their average, their check is $100, okay? Their debt that same month is $120, okay? Their debt is 120% of their income. And it's just... It's just scary, okay? It's really scary. And we're not talking now just about poor people. We're talking about middle income or relatively high income people who have been hoodwinked into thinking that there is no tomorrow. Okay, so they're mortgaging their houses. They're going to a second mortgage so they can get some spending money and so on, because well, interest rates are low and so on and so on. And it's just extraordinary what people and what are they doing all this to buy? Junk, you know, or image or something like that. And at the same time, their kids are screaming at them all the time because television is helping them to want more and more and more. So the households are in real, real trouble. To say nothing of what those households, the kind of trouble they have now with this recovery that is not a recovery for at least at least one million people are never going to get their jobs back again. And it, it isn't just getting jobs. It's, they're not going to get the same pay that they used to get, and they're not going to get any benefits at all. So we're, we're just talking about a, a situation which is really critical already for the average person, but they don't know it yet, so they haven't given up yet. Although consumer confidence is dropping month by month, there's no panic. Get back to your word, there's no panic there yet, okay? And that isn't where it counts anyhow. Where it counts is in the financial world. Meanwhile, the foreign debt of the United States is now well over $4 trillion. I might say that when Reagan came into office, and he was one of the people who really pushed things ahead to the direction they're in now, it got started in the 70s as kind of a wrinkle on the on the sheet, but Reagan just pulled out his pants and pissed all over the whole thing. And When Reagan came into office, the United States was the largest creditor nation in all of history. The rest of the world owed us $1 trillion. When he left office eight years later, the rest of the world, we owed $1 trillion. Now we owe over $4 trillion, and it's going up faster than $1 trillion every two years. Okay, faster than that. So in today's times, Uchitel or Ukitel is asking himself and economists, how long can this go on? Hmm? And the answer is nobody knows. That's one of the answers. Another answer is it depends. Another answer is, well, things are changing pretty rapidly, but they're not changing in ways that are encouraging. For example, our main creditors, if you go back 10 years or so, for France, and Germany, and Japan, and Britain, our main creditors now China. That's our main one. and Japan, those two, with China catching up. And it is up to the Chinese to decide, as they have decided, never to challenge the dollar because they don't want they don't want to have the dollar get to be flibbity or frippity. They have a need to have the United States importing more and more from them until their own economy can use up their own production more and more. Okay. So they don't want to have any monkeying around with the dollar. They don't want the dollar to explode. The Japanese, who were our best customer 10 years ago, and we were their best customer, their best customer now, let's see if I can remember the name of that country. Four letters, no, five letters, That's oh, China. That's right. And China's their best customer, and Japan is China's best customer. Okay? And when you look at this and you ask, how's it going to go... You have this debt going up always more rapidly for the United States, always more rapidly. This broke records last month, it's the highest ever, the last three months. And with all this going on, and it must go on, okay, because everyone, whether it's in China or Japan or Germany or France or the United States, recognizes that the United States is keeping the whole world economy going by importing more than it's exporting, and having to go into debt in order to do that, how else is it gonna do it, okay? So we have this situation where if the United States were to begin to have equal imports with exports, and our exports aren't going to go up. They're always going down, and we're becoming less and less industrialized with every year. Our exports aren't going to go up. That's not going to help us. If our imports go down, that means the rest of the world goes down. And as soon as that begins to get to some critical stage, and nobody can define what that point is, then somebody's going to think, I better unload because when the United States gets into trouble with this financial situation, then its currency goes down. Okay? The value of its currency goes down. That is to say the people who own all those U.S. assets are going to lose a lot of money. So everyone knows, everyone, I don't mean everyone, the little guy in the street someplace in Sweden or something, but the people who are important in the financial community in the rest of the world know that if they decide the time has come I better start dumping before everything goes down. Then they're afraid, and rightly so, that's going to start the panic going. So don't panic first. Don't panic. Don't panic. But if you're going to panic, panic first. Now, this is such a we're talking about something that's like two people standing on the edge of a building, wondering who's going to push. Is he going to push me or am I going to push him? You know, and so at some point somebody's going to push, and we're talking about something that's really. Wild in the future, and that's just foreign debt and household debt. I'm not saying anything about the national debt or the debt of financial corporations or non-financial corporations, and financial corporations like banks. It's just extraordinary. Debt is the real four-letter word now. Okay, it really is fantastic. And this is not the first time in history that this sort of thing has happened. It's just that it's happening. On a different scale now, quantitatively, it's just enormous, okay? Not just enormous in terms of the number of people and the number of, quote, dollars, but qualitatively, it's something else again also, because this is a moment, I said everything was connected some minutes ago. Qualitatively, the situation is that everything is connected, where we're talking about the connection between politics, economics, environment, and the military. And this, the world is so fragile now, and we've made it. More than anybody else, we have made it this way. It's so fragile politically and militarily and economically and socially. I mean, when you talk about Iraq and Afghanistan and so on, you're talking about socioeconomic, political, military questions, okay? I mean, if somebody would say to me, Doug, okay, uh, let's, let's go crazy and say, you're going to have the right to decide what to do. I wouldn't know what to do. Okay? It's too big a task. I mean, it's like we're back in... 1899, which is where we are now, 1899 again, just at the edge of a precipice. Nobody knows how far away the edge, whether it's two feet away from the precipice or 20 feet or two two inches, but 1899-1900. That's what was happening to the world then. With Britain, Britain was the United States, and just as stupid as we are now, but not as powerful and not as dangerous as we are now. Britain could be contested. We can't be contested militarily. We certainly can't be contested economically without the whole world going down. And we can't be contested militarily without the whole world being blown up by us. Okay, quite apart from anything having to do with the environment, which is a longer scale thing. I mean, we've probably got about 50 years to go before that really goes absolutely bananas. I would say something else. You know, I'm in my mid-80s now, and so I've seen a lot of governments come and go in this country and read about a lot of governments coming and going in Europe and elsewhere. And today, one has to say that the governments, especially the United States government, the kind of, let's say, social intelligence, attitudes, policies they support and oppose, are so out of tune with what's necessary and what would be useful. They're so backward. They're back in... I mean, people say, it's as though Hoover were here. No, Hoover was much better than these people. Hoover was a very conservative guy. These people are not conservative at all. Just, they say neocons. Well, neocons suggest they're conservatives in some sense. No, they're not conservatives. They're wild people, ideological fanatics. And another thing is really very, very dangerous is that now, the consciousness of the people who are sitting in the Senate and the House and the Supreme Court and in the state legislature is a consciousness that was framed during the Cold War. Okay, I mean, you take somebody who's The average age of somebody in the the house probably is in the 50s someplace. So their whole consciousness of what makes sense and what doesn't make sense was developed in what I see as an insane world. I see the Cold War world as an insane, unjust, dangerous world. And that's their normal, okay? The normal for me was the Depression, World War II, and what happened right after that, even though I, I was 20 years old in 1939, okay? So... That normal to me was a horrifying normal. Like many, many, many other people, my age and younger, by say 10 or 20 years, we didn't want to have that normal ever happen again. But these people, they're Cold War babies, all of them are, and normal to them means a very prosperous economy going along with this insane and aggressive and dangerous foreign policy. It's just dangerous as hell, you know. We don't have any sense of disaster in this country. We don't have any perspective, a friend of mine used to say a little simple sentence. He said, you know, Doug, he says, the people in this country don't hate war enough. So we're in real trouble in terms of, to go back to your question finally, this so financialization thing, put together with why it's happening and what is going on with respect to debt and speculation and the kind of people who are running the show and the kind of mentalities they have, it's just, it's for me, it's mind-boggling. I'm so... Well, I'm, I'm terrorized by the whole thing because as far as I can see, the world lying ahead of us and the lies that lie ahead, you know, are just really going to be phenomenally awful and uh, there's no way to stop it. We have to learn enough so that we can trust ourselves and really at the same time be organizing, 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 organizing. We have to change our way of living. I don't think it's going to happen. I just know it can happen. Okay?
0: I'm speaking with economist and author Doug Dowd. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Doug, you talk about organizing a mass movement, and certainly that's what we need here in the United States. If you were to organize one, under what rubric would you do it? Would you make it an anti-capitalist movement, or would you simply organize for our needs? Let's say organize and demand what we need from the government.
2: That's a very important and good question. I'll probably go on and on about it so you can stop me when you wish. I would say in the first place that I've been around a long time and always working on matters politically with some degree or another, some element or another of the left. All of them, okay? I've always worked with groups, none of which I've agreed with entirely, except one thing. We've got to make some changes here, you know. So in the process, I've often been attacked as being a reformer A reformist, which is a dirty word on the left. I'm not a reformer. I'm someone who works for reforms but doesn't think that reforms can work unless they're part of a movement of linked reforms in which the people, as I mentioned much earlier today, unless the people who are working for this, that and the other thing are also working together. Not instead, but also, also, also. And we have to learn in this country to stop thinking in either or terms and begin to think really seriously politically in and both. Instead of either or. Now what this means to me is the slogan, if I believed in slogans, and maybe we have to do that in this country, would be the slogan would be we have to have a society which is dedicated to meeting the basic needs of people. I'll say something more about that in a minute. And a society which would do that can only come into being because of a massive movement rooted in ordinary people, not rich people, not professors, just ordinary people, no matter what they may be. And that movement, as it would be moving toward a different society, would be moving toward a society that was not capitalist. I don't give a damn what it's called. It would be not capitalist and it'd be one other thing. It would be really, genuinely democratic. A non-capitalist, democratic society. Democracy means to me not political democracy, not economic democracy, not social democracy. It's not democracy unless it means all three, okay? Which means the economy has to become increasingly democratized. We have to be moving toward a society of equality, where equality doesn't mean we're all the same height, the same weight, or the same color, or the same... It means we are the same power. We all have as much power as everyone else has, okay? And as much dignity, and as much opportunity, so that the educational system would be... For one thing, from the damn beginning, from the preschool to the PhD, would be geared to both the teaching and the learning be something that has in its bloodstream democratization of everything, okay, and so on. Now, let me say something about basic needs. I am, I am pissed off with so much about economics and our society. And one of the things I'm pissed off about, as I indicated earlier, was this to, total... Indifference to the whole concept of needs. The basic needs are very simple. Simple, and there's no one who has any whose needs are more basic than anyone else's. We all must have adequate nutrition. We all must have adequate access to health care. We all must have adequate all have, have to have adequate housing, and we have to have adequate opportunity. These are the kinds of things that we need. We can't get along without them. And what we have done instead, and what capitalism not only has done, but must do, is to commodify everything, as everything is on the market. You get the healthcare you can pay for, you get the education, depending upon your social status, and your income, and, and your housing, and your housing depends upon, and so on and so on and so on. We have to have a, a movement in which everyone in the left or center, and I don't think they do this yet, by any means, understands and agrees that every person in our society and in the world as not just the need, but the right to have their basic needs met. Now you start working along those lines, and before you know it, you're talking about not revolution, but certainly not just reforms. Because you can't move along that line without the power structure really being drizzled down to move toward the middle and the bottom. Move the bottom up and the top down, so you're getting a a middle level of power structure. There still would be differences, but nevertheless, it's the movement, it's the direction that counts. And equality is, is something I would, so to speak, die for, okay? It's about the only thing I would die for. One of the things that people don't understand about or don't understand well enough about or not to, not enough people understand well enough is that political involvement is not just something you do. It's a dynamic which changes you, and it changes you for the better. So that the more you work for something, you change You're changed by it, it's a dynamic process. So that moving toward a linked reforms movement, trying to do that, would also raise our standard of what we need, and as far as I'm concerned, within a generation or so, assuming we wouldn't be wiped out in the process, people would begin to see that the whole idea of capitalism was really absolutely stupid, dangerous, dehumanizing, fatal idea, okay? You don't even have to use the word capitalism. But in my judgment, parenthetically, so to speak, in this country, or perhaps in much of the world, but certainly in this country, the socialization process of the past 50 or 60 years, or even the past 100 years, has made words like socialism and communism and revolution so absurd in people's minds, or so awful in people's minds, that they can't even think about the words.
0: Doug, do you feel that the permanent wars that we're now facing are a, a consequence of a crisis in capitalism? Is that what's behind these wars?
2: When you say capitalism, most people think of, of an economic system. It's never been and could never have been an economic system alone. It had to be from the beginning a sociopolitical system, eco- sociopolitical economic system, where the power is held by the people who are who owned and controlled the means of life, which we call the means of production. And it became, in the process of becoming capitalism, let's say that which, which it had become, in some irre- irreversible sense, by the 18th century, perhaps earlier, perhaps not, but in Britain, come in becoming irreversible and becoming a system, that is to say, which wouldn't be undone, except by major developments. It also became a cultural system. So capitalism... and and a military system. It's never been, it couldn't, in order for capitalism, for example, to come into power, could come into being and become irreversible, it was necessary for political revolution in Britain, understand? When I say revolution, I'm overusing a word, but but, uh, transformation, shall we say. And that was a long process, many, many decades. And Adam Smith, Adam Smith's main aim was, in fact, to speed up that process, which was on his way when he wrote in 1776, of all years, in Britain. And uh, what you got, as 50 years went by, was you got a transformation of the political system in Britain, and which facilitated, very much facilitated, the industrialization movement, and in doing that, gave more and more power to the industrialists, and that changed the political system even more, and so on. And at the same time, that political system, or I should say that socioeconomic political system we call capitalism, couldn't function except by expanding at home and abroad. Right away you're talking about militarism, whether you call it that or not, you can call it any goddamn thing you want to call it, but it's militarization. I mean, there's no way for the Brits to take over India or parts of the Middle East or parts of Latin America without guns, guns and boats, you know, and so on. And any more than there was any way for us to take over the whole North American continent without guns and so on. And... When I talk about capitalism, I talk about militarism and racism and imperialism and so on. All these things are the same thing, are part of the same things, like the body, you know, and it's an organic kind of a thing. So the militarization is part and parcel of it. So when capitalism, what's in crisis is not capitalism as an economic system, it's capitalism, which is what it is. It's an overall organization of society, of the whole social process in one degree or another. It's as though there were a great big bucket of red paint and dropped and everything to one degree or another, depending on how close or how far it is from where the bucket of paint is, turns red to one degree or another. But I suppose that today one would have to say that the, the ways in which capitalism is both reaching its highest degrees of power and self-destruction are in the cultural and the military realms because the cultural realm is a thing that has spread like wildfire over the world. And U.S. capitalism is the most capitalist of all capitalist societies, and the least tradition-bound, and the cruelest to its own people. And now that's beginning to be understood abroad.
0: Could you talk a little bit about China?
2: Well, the way I work as a teacher and as a writer is I spend two or three hours every day, whatever else I'm doing, reading, whether it's periodicals or books or whatever, just try to keep up with what's going on and learn from things that have been going on. You know, it's sort of like breathing in and breathing out for me. I do that every day. And uh, I found myself about a year ago thinking, hey, I better start really keeping a file on China. China's always been a place that, in effect, especially if you're someone from the West Coast here... It's a place that you always look down upon. It's like, oh, all this stuff about Chinese culture, okay, 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 but still, great big place with an awful lot of poor people being squat upon and so on and so on. And now, as it happens, I don't have the clippings from today's Times, for example, in front of me, and there were several, but now what's happened is that there's a kind of a growing, very slowly growing recognition that China has always had also other kinds of qualities to it. People either recognize or make fun of the so-called Mandarin rule. Well, one of the things that China has always been has been a society in which, however badly off the poor people are, and they've been very badly off, there's always been a small segment of the population. It's really very, very well educated and very well trained and organized and so on and so on and so on. But a very small percentage of the Chinese population, which is 1.3 or some say one point Five billion people. Very small percentage of that is bigger than by far than Western European population. You understand in total. So you have now, and, it's, and now it's being recognized. If not by the average person in the United States, it's recognized by the corporations in the United States. That's the place where the next modern economy is going to come from. What we did was to move in to capital over there, starting some decades ago, and accelerating in the past two decades. And because cheap labor, et cetera, etc, et etc, cetera, et cetera. Okay. now what's happened is that that cheap labor now is getting factories of its own, okay, and the technological expertise is rioting over there and so on. And the same thing in a lesser degree, but still much greater degree than elsewhere is happening in India, okay, and between them they have over two billion people, you know two and a half billion people, minimum out of the total of six billion people in the world. So we're talking about not nobodies, okay? And although India is a desperate country in many ways for at least half of its people, we're not talking about that. The United States was a desperate place too for most of its people in the 18th century, in the 19th century, okay? And for at least a third of its people now. So that's not what the game is about. We're not talking about which is the nicest place in the world. We're talking about which is the most powerful place in the world, economically and therefore possibly probably other ways okay possibly military I should say possibly probably military possibly possibly culturally possibly politically who knows you know right now what you can say is that if you take a look at Asia Southeast Asia and East Asia that is a uh, getting away from from Afghanistan East all of the nations there are looking more and more at China in terms of respect and fear, wants and needs, possibilities for them and so on. In other words, they're beginning to look at China the way the United States was looked at uh, in the past. The United States, I might say, incidentally, was very, very powerful before the world recognized it was very, very powerful. I remember when I was studying uh, economic history at Berkeley as a student, that one of the books I read, it was written in 1926 by a British economic historian who was talking about economics of the rest of the world. She spoke about the United States as a very strong agricultural country. Well, when she was writing in 1926, the United States was already already more powerful than Great Britain, by far, industrially. The way that we're blinded by our preconceptions and by our our socialization process is really extraordinary. China now, let's say you just take a tenth of its population and say that they're really very good technologists, uh, organizers, uh, uh, skilled laborers, and so on. A tenth of the population is twice the population, total population of France or Italy. You understand? In any case, the thing about them which is really most striking, and I might say depressing at the same time, is that they are going to become the most successful capitalist country in the world's history, and it's going to be totalitarian capitalism. Because they have this tradition of authoritarian rule in China. They don't have to invent it the way the Germans, well, let's say the Germans had it too, but not quite the way that Hitler brought it into them. But they have a totalitarian rule. The Russians have totalitarian rule now too. Putin is moving toward it as rapidly as he can, and so on. But the Chinese have, because they have this totalitarian rule, and because they're not stupid, and because they're economists and business people and their political people are all relatively... Relative to this country or Britain or France or Italy relatively smart about what's going on in their own country The probability is that they're going to be able to any crisis that emerges over the next 10 or 20 years And I'm absolutely positive. It'll be within the next 10 years Any crisis that emerges they will be able to handle that better than any other country in the world in terms of their ideas and their force their power their internal power, okay, they have the ability and the inclination to organize, to do what's necessary organizationally better than any other country in the world. It's too bad they do, because it's a cruel country. It's really cruel, okay? Britain was cruel, too. We were cruel, too. The French were cruel. The Italian. everyone's cruel. They got more people to be cruel about, and they have a long history of cruelty. So do we. I mean, just ask the descendants of the slaves in this country, you know? So do we. I mean, we're so goddamn arrogant about this as though we've had these beautiful, clean, white hands all of our lives. No dirt under the fingernails at all. In fact, bloody claws is what we've had. And because we've been so rich, and because we've been so rhetorical about how great we are, we've convinced ourselves that we're really, you know, Princess Cinderella sort of a place.
0: I'm speaking with economist and author Doug Dowd. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
2: And it happens that still here in 2004, I would say, in my experience, and I ought to know, it's easier for someone like myself to shoot off his mouth here than any other country in the world that I know about, you understand? For a while, it has been. And I went through the McCarthy period, you know, and I know. There's no question about it. This place is dangerous as hell. But there is a tradition of people like myself, for example, being able to let off steam, if you want to call it something gentle like that, and get away with it for a longer while, at least, than in other countries. On the other hand, I almost didn't get away with it either. The FBI collected 2,500 pages on me, and all I ever did was talk, write and talk, you know? Mr. Dangerous, I mean, it's laughable, you know? I've never been dangerous. I've never even been influential, you know? So that's the reason I got away. But they did arrest my good friends. I mean, the Seattle 7 was my son, was one of my son. The Chicago 7, I was on the steering committee of the group from which they were all chosen, you understand? So I was lucky. So you can't get away with everything in this country. But one of the reasons we're able to get away with it, if we are, if and when we are, is because we don't make any difference. That's a great triumph, you know. I think as soon as one begins to make a difference, then you have to begin to wonder about things a little bit.
0: A lot of people feel that we're heading for a police state here if things continue the way they're going with the Patriot Act One, Patriot Act Two, the crackdown on immigrants. How do you see that?
2: No one can predict things like this, but I would say that this administration, having gotten into power even though it lost an election, uh, given the fact if it's re- re-elected, if it's put back in office, they'll have four years in which to screw around any way it wants to, and I think they'll be much more aggressive in what they were doing at home and very probably as aggressive as they feel like being abroad. And I think at the same time, it cannot be forgotten or put aside, I think, that the war in Iraq is inevitably going to get worse and worse and worse and worse in terms of not just its casualties, but in terms of the, kind of, the kinds and qualities and quantities of strife that go on there. And in effect, a suppressed civil war, where the civil war will be within Iraq, and against us as well. I don't think there's any question at all, there's a kind of a quantum leap taking place every month amongst the Iraqi people against the United States. And it's interesting now that people in high places in Washington, without ever making a big thing about it, are all of them quite casually saying, well of course it's going to take two or three or four or five or six years, and so on, and Kerry and Bush are both saying something like that. Well, that's what it might seem as though it's going to take. They'll be lucky if that's what it takes. I think the probability is that we will be pushed out of there as we were pushed out of Vietnam. And to the degree, this goes back to your question, to the degree that that happens, that will stimulate unrest in this country. And that unrest could then become a real danger to the administration, which it isn't now. Okay? Then anything will go with them. important to understand what might be happening. Then we will become a police state too, or they'll try to make us become one. And I want to say something else along these lines. On my website, I hesitate to say this, but after I finished writing this book, I found myself not wanting to, but writing another book. Okay? And the book is called tentatively Where We've Been and Where We're Headed. And it's a book. It's a narrative book. It's not like the encyclopedia. And in there, at some point, I feel it's important to, in terms of where we're headed, for people to pay some attention to Germany. Most people... Don't know anything about Germany in this country. In the 1920s, Germany was seen as the center of human achievement in the world. Most people don't know that. In science, in industry, in music, in literature, art, everything. Everybody went to Germany. They went to Berlin or they went someplace. All the intellectuals and engineers and the scientists, everybody went there, you know. That was in 1925. 1933, the president of Germany handed the government chancellorship to Hitler. Hitler's party had won one-third of the vote in the election. That's all. The chancellor, of course, was a German general, Hindenburg. But between 1925 and 1933, what was going on was a development of two things. One, a very powerful left movement, and two, a very powerful right-wing movement. And the left was divided between socialists and communists and fighting very effectively against each other and not fighting at all effectively against the right. That's why Hitler got a third of the vote and got the government. When I say that's why, it's a poor use of words. In any case, what happened afterwards came to be called, what I'm calling now, because I'm borrowing from others, the phenomenon of the good Germans. The good Germans means or refers to people who didn't support Hitler, didn't like what he was doing, but didn't oppose him, just sort of remained silent. Between 1933, when he became chancellor, and, say, 1936, 1937, things kept happening, this, that, and the thing happened. Lots of stormtroopers walking around and lots of football fields with da-da-da, big deals going on, you know, and so on and so on. But it wasn't until you get to about 36, 37, 38, especially 38, that it began to clamp down. And the good Germans were people who didn't like what he was doing, but just let it go on until it got to the point where two things happened. One, they got be afraid to open their mouths and too weak. And secondly, they'd become to accept what was going on as normal. Because what you live with is what's normal. The Cold War became normal to us. And the Cold War was a hideous, terrible Thing okay, It wasn't just a Cold War, which we won when the Berlin Wall went down and Gorbachev did this, that, and the other thing. It was something which was devastating to dozens of countries throughout the world and also wrecked a good deal of what was possible in Western Europe and made it into what it is now, which is, of course, part of a globalization process when paying all the price for that too. In any case, what I'm afraid of in this country is not so much that say, a majority of the population would be enthusiastic about anything that people do. It's just that they won't do anything about it. They'll hope for the best until it gets to be too late. So I'm sort of, in some sense, another crying fire. You know, The fire is already lit, and the question is whether we can do something and whether we can get enough fire people to put it out and start building something else. I think it can be done, but I think it has to begin now I'm not optimistic about that. I'm hopeful, but not optimistic. I'm a, I'm a Gramscian. I don't, most people don't know who Gramsci was. Those who do know who he was know that he was, a, in effect, the intellectual and political head of the left in Italy when Mussolini came into power, and he was imprisoned shortly after that. He went to prison in 1925, 26 and he stayed there until the last month of his life, and he died while well, he was not while he was in the prison building, he was dying, so they took him out, so he died. But while he was there, as some who hear this will know, uh, among the things he wrote was a bunch of things that came to be called the prison letters, his prison letters. And uh, in those letters, at one point, here he's writing from a fascist prison. He used this famous expression, which is very, very famous in Italy. Pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will.
0: I've been speaking with economist and author Doug Dowd. His new book, The Broken Promises of America at Home and Abroad, Past and Present, an encyclopedia for our times, is published by Common Courage Press in two volumes. It may be purchased from the publisher at www.commoncouragepress.com or by email at info at For more information and to read articles by Doug Dowd, Visit his website at www.dougdowd.org. That's www.dougdowd.org. Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Yaro Mako and me, Bonnie Faulkner. To leave comments or order copies of the show, call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.net or visit our website, At www.gunsandbutter.net.
1: Hey yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall, cause love conquers all, you understand what I'm saying, this is a call for all you sleeping souls, wake up and take control of your own cipher, and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life, you know what I'm saying, look what decides itself for peace. You dig me?